0: Passage today comes from the second book of Samuel, chapter twelve. Before we read it together, I want to remind you that when we began this series, I pointed out that the books of First and Second Samuel are the largest narrative of a single life in all of ancient literature. We know more about David than we know about any historic, ancient historical figure. We just, nothing even compares to what we know about David. I pointed out last week that all the way up until 2 Samuel chapter 10, everything that was recorded about David was primarily good, almost entirely positive. But all of a sudden in chapter 11, that all changes. In chapter 11, things take an absolutely terrible turn. In chapter 11, David sleeps with another man's wife and impregnates her. The man's name was Uriah. He was a faithful and longtime friend of David's. And when David attempts to cover it up, to make Uriah think that the child is his, when those attempts fail, he has Uriah killed. And then in order to cover that up, others are killed as well. It was absolutely terrible and dark time in in his life. And then once Uriah was out of the picture, David took Uriah's wife as his own. And did the best he could do to just sort of move on, sweep everything under the rug. And just kind of put the whole sword affair behind him. But if you were here last week, you may remember that even though it seemed as if David was getting away with it, he, he wasn't. You you probably know that even though God was not mentioned in the first 27 and a half verses, he was mentioned in the very last one. Um, that, uh, that he was watching in the last very last half of the verse it says in chapter 27 verse c in chapter 11 verse 27 it says but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord so that's the way chapter 11 ends and today we're going to see um, the Lord's response to to David's behavior normally we stand up for the reading of the scriptures but this is a really long passage so I'm just going to go ahead and ask you to, to remain seated I think that'll help us focus a little bit better 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'm beginning with verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan. Nathan is, is 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 sort of David's pastor, he's a prophet. He sent Nathan to David. And he came to David and he said to him, There were two women in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he and he brought it up, and it grew with him and his children. It used to eat his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, he said, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if if this were too little, I would have added so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did, for you did secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat with them, food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then, will, how then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do harm to himself. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, and when he asked they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he was dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And God richly blessed the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage. I pray that you would help me to explain it clearly, that we would be find hope and encouragement in in all of this. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, in the passage we just read today together, David is exposed. But here's the thing, he is also forgiven. And not only is he forgiven, he is restored. Not just forgiven, he's restored. And while it's my hope that we will find a great deal of comfort in today's passage, I think if we're honest with ourselves, this passage also leaves us with some pretty disturbing questions. Number one is how, after doing such a horrendous thing, how could God... Allow David to remain king? That's one question people have. Another one is is how how could God have gone on to bless the marriage between David and Bathsheba? I mean they went out and had had had, more children together. The third one is if David was indeed both forgiven and restored, then why did this child have to die? Or or why did the Lord declare the rest of David's life would be accompanied by so much sorrow? And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that that indeed came true. So let me begin with the very first question. How could God have allowed David to remain king? I mean, what kind of... Honestly, I mean, let's be honest. What kind of example is this? I mean, what kind of message does that send to people? I always wonder... I I do. I've never been able to get over it. I always wonder how Uriah's family must have felt. What what must have they thought about what David had done? Um, Now, we don't know if his parents were still alive, but surely he had siblings or at least cousins who who loved him and cared about him and were invested in his life that he was important to. And what about the other men who were killed? What about their families? Again, the text doesn't... It just doesn't tell us. Yet, yet I still, I always sort of wonder, I mean, how did they deal with their pain? How did they deal uh, uh, with the injustice of it all? I mean, what went through their minds when they saw David and Bathsheba moving on with their lives? What did they think when they saw David and Bathsheba yucking it up at some state dinner? Uh, what did they think when they saw David and Bathsheba enjoying their high positions? enjoying the salvation that the Lord had indeed restored to them. What did they think when they saw David and Bathsheba being blessed by the Lord with another child, Solomon, who would then become king? And what about Bathsheba's family? I mean, how do they feel about all this? I mean, can you imagine the gossip that must have been going around when Bathsheba's girlfriends were getting ready to throw that baby shower? I, can you imagine how awkward it must have been at, at, at the family get-togethers during the holidays as they sit down for dinner? I mean, incredibly awkward. I mean, can you just imagine the confusion that this all must have, have caused? And, and I think even today, reading the story, it causes confusion. Listen, there is no doubt about it. What David did was absolutely horrible. Horrible. David was responsible for the pain and the sufferings of so many people. David was responsible for destroying the lives of of so many people. But but here's the thing. When when we read the Bible, even the Old Testament, we must understand that the Bible is first and foremost a story of grace. Grace. We must understand that God's capacity to forgive is just so much further beyond than where what ours is. And we must understand that although David's sin is enormous, it is wildly outdone by God's grace. Now, that is true. But I also want to acknowledge that there are people in this room right now who to varying degrees have, like Uriah, been the the victim of of someone else's sin. There are people in this room right now that I know have had to endure the pain and the suffering and the consequences of somebody else's wrongdoing. Somebody's evil. There are people in this room who have had to sit back and watch as those people who caused so much pain seem to have just simply moved on with their lives as if nothing happened. There are people in this room, I know there are, who have cried out for help. Who have gone to loved ones or to the authorities. And then were made to feel as if what happened to them was their own fault. Or told that they just needed to move on or let it go or get over it. And then to make matters even worse, it often feels as if the Lord is simply nowhere to be found. That the Lord is silent. That the, the Lord is allowing evil to go unchecked. And and I think to one degree or another, I think we all feel that way at times when we're faced with injustice. But let's also understand that there are people in this room. Here, there are people in this very room who, like David, have been the cause of suffering. There are people in this room who are responsible for the heartache of other people. And I believe there's people in this room who are racked with guilt and sorrow, but there's just no way for you to, to make things better. There's no way for you to compensate for the pain and the suffering that you have caused. And I think, here's the thing, just like the other is true of all of us, I think that one degree or another, we are also, this is a description of all of us as well, we have all been the cause of somebody else's pain to one degree or another. Now, if you find yourself on one side or the other of this equation, I think it's important to understand that when it comes to your sin and when it comes to the sins of others that are committed against you, God never looks the other way. God never pretends that what happened didn't happen. He never sweeps things under the rug and he never forgets. Never. One of the greatest examples of this is found in Matthew's gospel. When Matthew begins his gospel, records his gospel he begins by giving us the genealogy or the 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 the, the ancestry of jesus and he begins his genealogy begins his ancestry with with all the way back with abraham you mean you know you get abraham beget you know jacob and jacob beget you know i'm sorry abraham beget isaac isaac beget um so and so forth and 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 so he beget jacob and, and it just goes on and on and on and when you get to david Look at what he look at what Matthew records in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. It says, And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. You see that? that, that, that now this is important. Nearly a thousand years had gone by, yet even still there was there was and there continues to be no sweeping of, under the rug. There, there is no pretending as if it never happened. And there is, even after a thousand years, there is no forgetting. What David did. There's just not. And here's something else. While God calls his people. In Romans chapter 12. To the hard and painful work of repaying no one. Evil for evil. When God calls his people. um, To the hard and painful work of doing what is honorable in the sight of all. And living peaceably with all. When God calls his people in in Romans chapter 12 I think it's verse 19 he calls his people to never avenge themselves but rather to leave it to the wrath of God he also assures his people that vengeance belongs to him that he, he, he says he will repay he will bring justice you see God is not bound by time so Uriah's family, as well as the, the, the families of those who died in the cover-up, as well as those of us in this room who have suffered so greatly at the hands of another, as well as those who, like David, are responsible for the suffering of others, everyone, regardless of what side of the issue you're on, can know with absolute certainty that the Lord does not sweep things under the rug, that he does not move on, he doesn't just put things behind him, he never forgets. And that he will one day carry out his perfect justice with holy vengeance. The Lord hates sin. He's angry about it. So we can know that the Lord never forgets. Justice may be delayed, but it is, he promises it's coming. And that leads me to the next question. And that's why did this child have to die? I mean, look at me with what Nathan said to David. It's in verse 13 and 14. It says, the Lord has also put away your sin. And he goes on to tell him, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, that child was innocent. Why in the world would he have to die because of what David did? My answer to you is, I don't know. I don't. We're, we're not given a specific answer to this, but once again, we're, once again we're, we're just not told. The Bible doesn't say, but here's the thing. It does say that, that, that the death of this child was one of the consequences of David's sin. We, we, just, we can't deny that. We can't gloss it over. And and I know that this is upsetting to people. But let me say this. It is a dangerous thing to assume that we have a proper enough perspective to stand in judgment of God. It is a dangerous thing to demand answers to all the questions we have, to demand an accountability from the Lord. The fact is God does not owe us an answer to why he does what he does. It just doesn't what we do know is that God is holy that God is omniscient and that God is good and we also know that his ways are far beyond our ways we know that God sees things and makes his judgments from an eternal perspective you know we see the death of this child as a terrible thing and in, in very in, in a very real sense it is but from an eternal perspective is it There's not a person in this room that can answer that. Is it possible that something else is going on here? Think about it with me. Something that that I have been trying to show you several times throughout this sermon series is that when David is at his very best, he serves as a foreshadow of Christ. He, He serves as a picture of the coming Messiah. That this is what the Messiah will be like. Now, in the passage two weeks ago, we saw that in David's restoration of Mephibosheth, we saw that that was a demonstration of what the Lord would one day do for his people through the Messiah. Now, as I said a moment ago, I don't know, and we're not told why the child of David and Bathsheba had to die, but it appears to me that this child may very well also be, like his father David, a picture or a foreshadow of the coming Messiah. It appears to me that the death of this child just might be pointing to another child who would have to die. It appears to me that the child being referred to here is actually Jesus, the ultimate son of, of David. Who would become the object of God's justified anger and wrath? Who would receive the punishment that David fully deserved? Who would die and experience the torment of hell on David's behalf? I think that's what's going on here. Now, if you're visiting with us and, and this is new to you, you're not. here you, I understand it. I understand, it's, I, I can easily hear people saying, this is all just so barbaric. I mean, this is just, it's just so violent. I, you know, and, and people could be turned off this. You know what? I understand. I do, I get it. I, in today's day and age, it often feels that way to people. But I want you to think about something with me for a minute. My, my daughter, Gianna, up here in the front row, is the most valuable and precious person in the world to me. Gianna, look at me. I, I love you. I love you more than I love all the rest of these people put together. Listen, I know I'm supposed to love my wife first. <laughs> but the love that a parent has for their child is beyond anything you can imagine until it happens. Gianna, you are the most precious thing in the world to me. Nothing and no one matters to me the way you do. and That's just the truth. Sorry, everybody, if you don't like that, but this is true. I care about her more than I do about all you guys put together. <clears throat> but I want you to imagine if somebody brutally attacked her. Imagine if somebody violated her or, or did terrible things to her. And then I want you to imagine if, if I didn't respond with anger and outrage Imagine if I just tried to sweep it all under the rug or pretend it didn't happen or just kind of move on. Imagine if I told her, you know, Johnny, you just need to let it go. You need to move on with your life. You need to learn how to forgive. You just need to get over it. And I know that's happened to some of you. But, But let me ask, what would that communicate to her? The fact is, my anger, my outrage, or my my lack of anger, or my lack of anger, would would say something to her about her value to me. Therefore, God's anger says something about our value to Him. The fact is, justice may to be delayed, but it is coming. The Lord has promised it. Nothing is forgotten. Nothing is swept under the lug. Everybody will be held accountable. Someone will pay. The wrath of God will be meted out. And that will be the person who committed that sin. Or if they are Christian, if they have placed their faith in Christ, their sin will be transferred to Jesus, will be imputed to him. And God, will take, God took his wrath out on Jesus at the cross. Those are the two options. By faith, our sin—if you become a Christian—by faith, our sin is trans—is is transmitted to Him. He is treated as if He is the one who committed the acts that we have committed. Or, makes sense? Someone will pay. It will be either Jesus or it will be us. So let's move on to another question. If David is indeed forgiven, then why is he told that from here on out that his family will be faced with one trial after another? Why does God go on, as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, go on to allow so many terrible things to happen to him? Now, this is a question that most Christians find themselves asking at some point in their lives. Listen, if I'm forgiven, if God truly loves me, then why does he or why has he allowed so many terrible things to happen in my life? As I pointed out at the beginning of the sermon, up until chapter 11, the narrative of David's life is is almost entirely positive. We see over and over again, David demonstrates this astonishing faithfulness. But everything changed in chapter 11. So what happened? What was it that changed? Here it is, to sum it up, David became comfortable. When David was in the wilderness, when he was running for his life, when things were uncertain, when he, when he had no control, it was then that he found himself closest to the Lord. It was then that he found himself to be the most Faithful. But here in in chapter 11 and 12, he's living in the palace. He's living the life of leisure. He's sleeping late, taking naps. Life was easy, and he was in control. Instead of running for his life, he was actually running his life. And that is when David became corrupt. If David is truly forgiven, then the suffering in his life, it cannot be punishment from God. If you're a Christian, what happens in your life cannot be punishment. Remember, God punishes his son. He punishes Jesus. Therefore, and I know this may sound like semantics to some people, but therefore we must understand that the trials that believers face are not the result of punishment of God, but rather they are the discipline of a loving father. The the trials we face in life are actually a form of God's mercy because he knows what we would be without them. You know, this room is filled with one testimony after another. There is not a believer in this room who cannot, cannot testify to this. I mean, just think back through your own life. The suffering you've experienced has proven itself to be the most significant avenue of real change. The instability that you've experienced is what so often draws you near to the Lord. The pain that you've experienced is what drives you to depend upon Him and what often keeps us from falling back into sin. Just does. 34 years ago, I think most of you know this, I was arrested for a DUI. I was so drunk that night, and the cop asked me for license and registration, I handed her a canceled check. <laughs> it, was just, it was just ridiculous. I, it, and, and I ended up in jail. Um, it, was, it was an absolutely horrible experience. Um, and I can tell you, it's probably one of the worst nights of my life. But if I had to go back and change it all, I wouldn't change that night. Because while that night was the most horrible night of my life, it was, always the, it was also the very best night of my life. The Lord used that experience to grab me by the throat, to get my attention. The Lord used that experience. to. to it, it, it was horribly painful. It was horribly embarrassing. But I am thankful for it. I don't know where my life would be without it. A.W. Pink writes this about punishment versus um, discipline. It says, When the believer is smarting under the rod, let him not say, God is now punishing me for my sins. That can never be. And I like this here. That is the most dishonoring of the blood of Christ. God is correct correcting thee in love, not smiting in wrath. Nor should the Christian regard the chastisement of the Lord as a sort of necessary evil to which he must bow as submissively as possible. No, it proceeds from God's goodness and faithfulness and is one of the greatest blessings for which we have to thank him. Chastisement evidences our divine sonship. The father of a family does not concern himself with those outside, but those within He guides and disciplines to make them conform to his will. Chastisement is designed for our good to promote our highest interest. Look look beyond the rod to the all-wise hand that wields it. Now, with, with all that being said, I want to address a more specific issue. There are people in this very room who, like David and Bathsheba, have experienced the loss of a child. In fact, I did the math, there are six of us in this, six families in this this small church that have lost a child. Some through illness, some through tragic circumstances. And then if you add those of us in the room who have experienced a miscarriage, it would easily more than double the kind of pain of losing a child, (laughs) And then there are others, I don't know if there's any in the room, but there are others who cannot have children. Can't have children at all. And and when these kinds of things happen, people often wonder, is this the result of, of God's displeasure? Is God punishing me? Is this because I fill in the blank? When this happens, people often find themselves looking back at their lives and thinking of all the ways in which they had been unfaithful to the Lord in the past or trying to think of all the things that they might have done to cause the Lord to be so angry with them. You know, I once knew a a young woman who had had an abortion when she was younger. And she was a Christian when, when she had this abortion But when she got older, when she got married and she was ready to have children, she couldn't have children any longer. And she was absolutely certain and she was tormented with the idea that the Lord was punishing her for what she had done. You know, while it is true that David was told that the death of his son was indeed because of his sin, apart from a direct word from the Lord, there is no reason for you to make that kind of assumption about yourself. There's just not. There have been countless others who have committed similar or maybe even worse acts than what David did, and yet their children did not die. And, and the vast majority of those who have had abortions have gone on to have children in the future. Here's the thing. If God forgave David, what could make you think that he would not forgive you? I was talking to Steve and Rhonda Plyma about this yesterday. They lost their son in 2012 to a DUI accident. Somebody... But he killed him. And they have been involved in a ministry called Compassionate Friends. The ministers to those who have lost a loved one. And they told me that one of the statements that they most often hear is, why did God let this happen to me? I, or I, I can't believe in a God who would let this happen to me. And they want answers. But the fact is, the answers we want to the specific questions we have it seems like they so often just go unanswered. But while God does not owe us a direct answer, there is something that we can know with absolute certainty. Number one, God is sovereign. There is no good thing or no bad thing that can ever befall us that is outside of his control. Here's something else we can know. David and Bathsheba's son did not belong to them. In fact, he didn't even belong to himself. It was not even his own. But rather, first and foremost, he belonged to the Lord. Look at Psalm 139 with me. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see, the Lord is the only one who has the power and the authority to give life, and he's the only one who has the power and authority to take it. In Job 14, it says this, it says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble comes out like a flower and withers he flees like a shadow and continues not his look at this his days are determined and the number of his month is with you and you have appointed its limits that he cannot pass you see david's son was given a purpose His child that died had a purpose and it appears that his purpose was fulfilled Here's something else I want you to think about. We often think of discipline as being entirely a a negative thing. For example, as as parents, we spank our children, we we ground them, or we give them timeouts. And those are forms of discipline. But so is helping your children with homework. So is reading bedtime stories to them. So is teaching your child to ride a bike. These are also forms of discipline because we are they are intended to shape our children. There are also disciplines in the church. When we joined this church, we we took a vow to submit to the authority and to the discipline of the church. And yes, sometimes that comes out in negative ways. Sometimes elders are responsible for admonishing somebody or for or barring somebody from the sacraments or even excommunication. It's a painful thing. But, but Sunday school is also a form of discipline. So is Bible study. So is fellowshipping with one another. These are all disciplines that are designed to shape us. And we've made vows that we will submit to them and we'll participate in those things. You know, the fact is, everything in your life, everything, whether good or bad, it serves as a form of discipline. Everything in your life, whether good or bad, is intended to humble you and make you more holy. So I ask this question, where are you trusting in the Lord to do whatever it is he needs to do to make you more holy? I I want to end by making sure I say this. I know that it's possible that some of you in this room have been holding on to some particular guilt. and Maybe it's gone on for decades. It's been eating at you. There's nothing you can do to fix the hurt that you've caused. If you're a believer, you must know that God never looks the other way. He never pretends it didn't happen. He doesn't sweep your sin under the rug. He doesn't forget it, and he doesn't make light of it. But you must also remember that God willingly bears that sin himself. And that's what sets you free. That's what grants you forgiveness. And that is the key to restoration. If you're visiting with us, let me say this. I'd like to clarify a common misunderstanding. A Christian is not somebody who is morally superior to other people. In fact, just stick around here for a while and you will see it firsthand. But rather, a Christian is somebody who is trusting that the punishment that they deserve has been taken out on another. That, like David, their guilt is transferred to David's son. God's only begotten son. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you that like David, that you would create in us clean hearts. That you would renew right spirits within us. We know that David felt like You would cast him away, and it often feels like you might cast us away. So we ask you, cast not us away. We know you won't because of your promise. We know you'll never take your Holy Spirit from us. So we ask, Lord, restore unto us the joy of, not just the forgiveness, but the joy of our salvation. And remind us and renew a right spirit within us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.